Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. Because there is creation, we know that there is a creator. And therefore, because God promises redemption, we know that there is a redeemer. This word redeemer is very big in Judaism and also very prominent in the scripture. In fact, the concept of redemption begins in the book of Genesis and it goes throughout all of scripture, all the way to the end in the book of Revelation. Now, we all are familiar with the Hebrew term Mashiach, where we get the term in English, Messiah. In Greek, Christos, where we get the English term Christ. And these two words, Messiah and Christ, are synonymous. Just two different languages are the source for them. But in English, they mean the same thing, the anointed one. And the term anointed one is related to the one who has been anointed to be king. Messiah is the king, but he's also the redeemer. And without his work of redemption, the kingdom could not be established. Now, a few weeks ago, we began our study of the book of Isaiah and specifically chapter 44. We've looked at it for two weeks now, and now in this session, we're going to come to the conclusion. And in this last part of Isaiah chapter 44, we see that the term redeemer and redemption is emphasized. And redemption in the Bible, there's really two aspects of it. In fact, in Hebrew, to make a distinction between these two aspects, there are two unique words, the Hebrew word padut, and this involves the payment that makes the outcome, geulah, the outcome of redemption, a possibility. Isaiah is going to reveal something most significant. He is going to tell that the work of redemption, from his prophecy standpoint, he is revealing that it comes first and then thereafter comes the outcome, the results of redemption. And what are the outcomes of redemption? Well, the outcomes are the kingdom establishment and all the wonderful promises and blessings that come within the kingdom. So with that said, take out your Bible and look with me to that 44th chapter of Isaiah, and we're going to begin with verse 21. Now, in the second part of this, this lesson, what we studied last week, we saw that, that Isaiah speaks about the futility of idolatry and also the wickedness 
of idolatry. And therefore, he says, as he begins his third and final section, he writes, remember these things. Remember the futility. Remember that idolatry brings about that which is evil. It also will bring about God's judgment. So he says, remember these things, O Jacob, in Hebrew, Yaakov. And also, he says, Israel. So both the term Jacob and Israel are being used here. Remember these things, O Jacob, and O Israel, for my servant are you. Now, it's very important that we see that once again, God is affirming the Jewish people using the term Jacob and Israel to refer to the Jewish people as his servant. And as I said, this passage is related to redemption. And Israel is inherently connected to redemption. And when I say redemption in this, this passage, I'm not speaking so much of the work of redemption, what the Messiah did, he is the redeemer, what he did 2,000 years ago upon that tree. But here the emphasis is more upon the outcome of redemption, the blessings of the kingdom, the kingdom being established so that the promises of God can be enjoyed. So once more, remember these things, O Jacob and O Israel, for my servant are you. I have formed you. A servant to me are you, O Israel. And then he says, and you will not be forgotten by me. So God is remembering something. He is not forgetting Israel, his covenant people, the promises that he's made and what he said concerning Israel, namely that he is going to use them in order to be his vessel of blessing, his instrument where his promises can be fulfilled. Now, this just simply goes along with what Messiah said. When he says to Israel, I will not come again, meaning the second coming, for the purpose of raising up and establishing the kingdom God. He says, I will not come again until you proclaim Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord until Israel has a change spiritually and Israel beseeches God for Messiah. Now, unfortunately, that change is not going to come easily nor quickly. That change is going to be brought about by intense suffering, troubles, hardships, trials, persecution. But nevertheless, God is going to allow such hardships in order to bring Israel to looking towards him, remembering his promises, his promises to send the Messiah and to initiate the outcome of redemption. And again, the outcome of redemption is this concept of the kingdom. There's an inherent relationship between the outcome of redemption, and the establishment of the kingdom of God. The work of redemption, which is 
a different Hebrew word altogether for redemption. It speaks about what Messiah did upon that tree, laying down his life, shedding his blood. This is what's known as the padut. But the outcome of that work, the establishment of the kingdom of God, and making available the promises and the blessings of God, making them accessible, is geulah, that is, the outcome of redemption, the fulfillment of the work of God. So he says here, at the end of verse 21, he says, you will not be forgotten by me. God's going to remember Israel and what he said concerning them, and he, because he is faithful, is going to bring it about. Now verse 22. Now here, there is wonderful news. Although the emphasis on this passage is the kingdom, God establishing it, he's going to remind the people of his work of redemption. And therefore it says in verse 22, I have blotted out. It's in the past. Now for Isaiah, he lived some, some 2,800 years ago. And therefore the work of Messiah was in the future. But now Isaiah is revealing something. He is revealing that the padut, the work of redemption, is going to take place. And then there's going to be a significant time between the work of redemption and the outcome of redemption. And therefore he says, and this is relevant for our days as we approach the end times and the outcome of redemption being made a reality. He says here, I have blotted out as a cloud your transgressions. Now, why does he say cloud? Because clouds dissipate. We look up, they're there, and then the next day, they're not. They also, even before our eyes, are blown away. They change, they, they disappear. So what he's saying here, as a cloud disappears, dissipates into the air, so your transgressions will do the same. And then he uses a different word for cloud. And he says, as a cloud, and the message is as well, disappears, so too, he says, your sins. So the big message here is the work of redemption has been done. Your transgressions, your sins, they are forgiven. They no more stand before me. The work of redemption has blotted them out, made them to be no more. And because of that, Israel is in a position whereby, look at the end of verse 22. He says, return to me. Why? For I have redeemed you. So God has done the work of redemption through his only begotten son, Messiah. And through that work of redemption, we see something. The sins, the transgressions of Israel, and not just Israel, all of humanity has been forgiven. Therefore, it is now possible. It can be done where individuals, he's speaking primarily to Israel here, but God is not a respecter of persons. This same promise is made available first to Israel, but it has human implications. All of humanity is invited to receive 
God's redemption. And therefore he says to Israel, return unto me for I have redeemed you. So again, the work of redemption, what Messiah did obviously upon that tree on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, it has been done in full. The work is complete. But still, Israel, to the degree that God would have them, this return back to faith in him has not yet happened to the degree that it will in the last days. Now look at verse 23. Because of Messiah's work, because he is the redeemer and he did perfectly what God commanded him to do. He laid down his life. He shed his blood. Redemption is now available. Therefore, it says in verse 23, Rejoice, O heavens. And we're going to see two different words for rejoicing. And both of these words have as a, a meaning to rejoice in a very demonstrative way. Meaning, shout for joy. Make known your, your happiness. So he says here, because this redemption has been done, God has redeemed you, O Israel. He says, O heavens, shout for joy. Because the Lord, he has done. And the implication is, he has done this, the work of redemption. And then he says, it's a different word, but very similar, to be joyful to be very, very public, very emotional, very loud. He says, rejoice, O lower parts of the earth. Bring forth, it means burst forth. Now this is a different word. Burst forth, O mountains. And then he goes back to a previous word that he's already used in this verse where he says, shout, O force and every tree in it. Why? Here's another time that he says, for the Lord has redeemed, and the messages that he has redeemed Jacob, and therefore because of this work of redemption that God has done to Jacob, there's going to be a transformation. Because in the end we see that Jacob, he was transformed. He was given a new name, Israel. So he says, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And because of that, there will be in Israel that God will be glorified. So in Israel, he will be, and the implication is God is going to be glorified. Now learn an important principle. Redemption allows that one who has been redeemed, to glorify God. Without acknowledging this redemption by receiving it and identifying who the Redeemer is, who is the Messiah, the Christ. Without identifying him, acknowledging his work, receiving his work by faith, you are not able to glorify God. He cannot be worshipped by you. Redemption is a prerequisite for godly worship, worship that God's going to be pleased with. So again, he has redeemed Jacob, and therefore in Israel, he will be, God will be glorified. Now let's look at verse 24. 
for thus said and again it's in the past signifying a promise signifying something that although it has not happened in the reality yet of isaiah's days it is as good as done because god has promised it for thus said the lord and who's the lord your redeemer now i open up our study by saying there is this inherent relationship between the redeemer and the messiah any scholar of the scripture any rabbi will tell you the redeemer and the messiah they are in fact one we're speaking about the same individual messiah is the redeemer and the redeemer is messiah but here we see something we see that the lord is your redeemer and this points to in a very clear way the divinity of messiah now some have simply said it is because it's the lord's plan that that he's called the redeemer but very important we need to see that there is this this coming together between god and messiah as one referring again to his divinity that it's he the anointed one the messiah the christ that does the work of redemption so again verse 24 thus said the lord your redeemer the one who has formed you in the womb i meaning i am him the lord and then he says the lord he does all and the implication is he does all of this now one other important point we always have to look at the nature of the grammar and here it speaks about if we look earlier on in the text we see for example back in verse 22 excuse me verse 23 where it says shout for joy o heavens for the lord has done it's in the past but here in verse verse 24 it says the lord is doing it's in a different tense and this tense that it appears in in verse 24 makes this emphatic it puts an emphasis it lifts it up in a very meaningful way the significance of what's being said so look again verse 24 thus said the lord your redeemer the one who has formed you in the womb or from the womb i meaning i am he the lord and it's the lord who is doing all of these things all of this and then he has a reference to creation he stretches forth the heavens by himself and he makes broad or high the land meaning the earth from himself for he does it by himself now why is creation mentioned here well very simply when we speak about the establishment of the kingdom of god this is the outcome that the work of redemption makes possible and what the scripture especially in the prophets do is that the scriptures tell us that the kingdom establishment is like a second creation so in the same way that god was able to create the world there's a testimony we live in this world we experience his creation we are created by him so we can be assured that his creation 
exists. And therefore, he uses the term and description of creation for redemption to confirm to us. In the same way that he was able to, the first time, create the heavens and earth, he is going to create a new heavens, a new earth, a new reality, a kingdom reality. And what enables that is his work of redemption. That's why we see in verse 24, him being revealed as your redeemer and also the creator. He does it by himself alone. Everything he says is from me. There's no other source. Verse 25. Now, whatever God's doing that is good, there's always going to be opponents, opposition. God, we know, has an enemy. And the enemy, one of his chief tools is deception, deceit, falsehood, or simply the concept of lying. Satan is a liar. We all know the scripture that says that he is the father of lies. So here we're going to see that God, he is going to defeat, destroy any concept of falsehood. Look at verse 25. Speaking about the Lord who does, it says, he makes void the signs and the people that he's talking about here, many modern translations will simply say false prophets. And it's certainly revealing to false prophets relating to that. But the word here is those who speak empty things. They don't necessarily have to be a prophet. They don't have to call themselves a prophet, but these are individuals that are speaking things and promising things and, and giving knowledge, they say. But all of this, God is going to thwart. He is going to make void. He is going to empty out all of these deceiving words, these individuals that speak falsehood. And he also uses a second word for the word is kospim, which is in modern Hebrew, a magician or a sorcerer. It's speaking about those that, that do supernatural things, but these supernatural things are all based in evil. They all are untrue. They are false. And therefore, he says, he is going to take these sorcerers, these magicians in a spiritual sense, these ones that do enchantments. And it says here that he is going to make them mad. What does that mean? Not they that they are going to be angry, but mad in the sense of craziness. That he is going to show that what they've said is madness. It's folly. It is ridiculous that there's no truth within it. So God is going to foil. He is going to make void these, these words of, of these false prophets, these sorcerers, these ones who say they are supernatural. He is going to show that, that they are truly mad individuals. And he says he's going to return the wise ones. Now, these are those who are wise presenting themselves in this world to be wise one. And he says he is going to turn back their wisdom behind. He is going to put it behind them, meaning it has no significance. And their knowledge he is going to show to be folly or foolishness. So all of these individuals who 
serve the enemy, speaking falsehood, promising great things, being someone who is a, a prophet, someone who is a sorcerer, God is going to show that their words are empty and that they are crazy, that they are mad. And to believe in what they say is, is folly. This is what God's going to do. He's going to, to judge them and show that they have no authority. They are not related to truth whatsoever. Verse 26. But in contrast to what he just said in verse 25, making empty and folly their words, he says, Mekim, this is a word for to establish. He is going to establish the word of his servant. Now, when he says the word of his servant, we're speaking about the message that God gave to Israel for the world. And what do you think he's talking about here? Very simply, he's talking about the, the message contained in this book. He is going to fulfill it. He is going to make it to be established. So this book came from Israel. We see the, all the authors. Now, someone will say, well, wait a second. I was taught that Luke was a Gentile. Well, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Now, it doesn't matter to me whether the authors are Jew or Gentile. If God chose them, that's good enough for me. But we see scripture saying that the oracles, the revelation of God was given to Israel. And the only reason that there are those within Christianity that say that Luke had to be a Gentile is because Luke's gospel has a, an emphasis upon the world, meaning all the nations. And my problem is this. Why can't a Jewish person have that emphasis? God has created Israel to be a blessing to the nations. And when you look and examine Luke's gospel, you know what you'll find? Luke was exceedingly knowledgeable in Jewish tradition. So I see no basis for one to, to flippantly say that Luke had to be a Gentile. No, there is scriptural evidence that the authors of the Bible were all Jewish. So we read here, look at verse 6. He is going to establish the word of his servant and the counsel of his messengers. These would be the prophets. And the counsel of his messengers, he is going to fulfill or make complete. So again, he's going to establish the word of his servant and the counsel of his messengers, he is going to complete make perfect, make a reality. He is the one that says to Jerusalem, be inhabited, be settled. Now, this is simply a prophetic truth that the people, the Jewish people, are going to go and resettle Jerusalem. And this is happening. Just this week, I was in Jerusalem, and, and as been the case for, for decades, there is massive building going on in Jerusalem. One large high-rise residential building after another. Real estate is booming and has been booming in Jerusalem and throughout all of Israel since the beginning, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. 
back over 70 years ago. So it just is a prophecy. He's the one who says that Jerusalem will be inhabited and the cities of Judah will be built up. And if you go in Judah, the southern part of, of Israel, around Jerusalem and further south, you will find, as you do in the north, you will find that there is, is great building going on. You go by a development project, and you see these cranes, these large cranes to move materials and to build these high-rises quickly. And if you go to America, you might see one or two of these cranes for a building project. We went by Gadara, and there was 19 at one site. Now, I'm not a contractor, but I have a friend who is. He was a contractor since his early 20s, and now he's in the 80s. And I asked him a question some, some many years ago. When he visited Israel with one of our tours, he was amazed by the number of cranes for a building site. And I asked him, why is that so significant? Why do they have so many cranes in, in proportional to what you see in American other places? He says there's only one reason to have that many cranes at a building site. I said, what is it? He says, to build quickly. And this is exactly what we see. Buildings going up and no sooner do they go up. In fact, even before they're completed, people are, are living in the building. We moved into our high-rise uh, much before it was completed. They were still finishing up, but in Israel, if your apartment's ready, you can move in many times, building fast. Just exactly what he says here. So we read the cities of Judah, they will be built, and the desolate places. This is a world word that means the ruins, the ruins of those cities that were destroyed by the enemy. He says something. He says, I will establish them. Literally, it's a word, I will raise them back up. It's a word that relates to a type of resurrection. So what God is promising here is that these places that the enemy destroyed, that was part of the judgment of God, God says, enough. Sins have been dealt with. They have been forgiven. And therefore, I'm bringing the people back to the land, and I'm going to build up the land. And even these places that were destroyed, they are going to be resurrected. And by the way, it's happening. You know, it's not amazing to me that it's taking place because God said it would 2,800 years ago, even before it was destroyed by, by the Romans. But, but here's what's hard to understand is why that there's so many so-called biblical scholars that are replacement theologians, that think that God is finished with the land of Israel, that Jerusalem, it's in the past, there's no future of it, that there's no millennial kingdom, that God's not going to send Messiah back to establish once more Jerusalem as the center of a kingdom. They're always heaven, heaven, heaven. Well, the problem is this. I hear so many people, in fact, and I mentioned this some time ago, that there's a very well-known Bible teacher in San Diego area, San Diego, California. 
And he gave a, a series of messages called heaven, our eternal habitation. No, heaven is not eternal. The Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and new earth is called by the wonderful name, the new Jerusalem. So Jerusalem for the millennial, this Jerusalem of today will have significance. God is bringing the people back, as he said, to the land. It's being built up. Cities that were destroyed 2,000 years ago are being resurrected. Everything we see here is being fulfilled in our days. Now let's look at verse 27. He says here, the one who says to the deep. Now this water, or this word for, for deep, has to do with deep waters that which is massively deep and what does god say god simply says to the deep waters be be dried up become uses word for arid which means very very dry and he also says to the rivers uses a different word but the same meaning be dried up so god is going to bring about a change and we know something we know, for example, in the New Jerusalem, there's not going to be any sea. So this, this statement about the deep waters and the rivers all be dried up, it's a reference to a coming kingdom, the New Jerusalem, the final state of God's kingdom. And then one last verse, and we'll wrap up, verse 28. Now, this is going to become more significant next week when we enter into chapter 45. But he says, the one who says, and who's the one speaking? It's God. God is speaking, and we know God speaks, and it's fulfilled. It's carried out. So God's sovereignty is going to say to, to Koresh. Koresh is Cyrus. And he calls Cyrus here, my shepherd. He is going to, Cyrus, is going to respond to God's instruction, and he is going to provide, he is going to lead something. And what is that? The return of the exiles back to Judah. Now, he's not doing it personally by leading them. He's giving the proclamation. He's giving them the opportunity, the governmental sanction of that empire. So the one who says to to Koresh or Cyrus, my shepherd. All of my delight, he will fulfill. He will complete. And that's what Cyrus did. He gave an edict and that edict was fulfilled. Eventually, Jerusalem was rebuilt, having been resettled by the exiles returning back to Jerusalem. And they came and they also built the temple. So my delight, what God wanted, Cyrus gave an edict, and it came about. And then he says, and to say to Jerusalem, once more Jerusalem, to be built. And not just Jerusalem built, but also it says, vehechal, a reference to the temple, primarily the sanctuary, that holy place. It's a reference to God's presence being restored to Jerusalem. It says, and the, the temple being founded, the foundations for the temple laid, and obviously the rest of the temple being built upon these foundations. So when we look at Isaiah 44, we see 
a promise. We see counsel. Don't fall into idolatry, but rely upon the truth, the prophetic revelation of God. And then we see that God is faithful, not only having done the work of redemption, the padut, but also that he is going to bring about the outcome of redemption, which is the reestablishment, which is the building up, the resurrecting of the cities of Israel for the habitation that they might be inhabited. And ultimately, all of this is being done so the temple can be rebuilt, reestablished, its foundations in place in order that God can be worshipped in Jerusalem, in Judah, in his nation. And all of this testifies to his faithfulness. See, we, the primary reason that we, we praise God, we worship God, is who he is. That's enough. But it's also wonderful. And it causes us to be thankful. His faithfulness to us. And his faithfulness to us can be anticipated because the prophets revealed it. So when we understand prophetic truth, we're going to better understand the work of God, how God is going to manifest his faithfulness. And his faithfulness also leads us to worship him, to thank him, and to understand what he's going to do, what he has, what he is, and what he will do in order that all of his promises, all of his blessings become a reality for us in the fullness when we enter into that kingdom. Well, I'll close with that. Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank <laughs> you.